We're on the ropeway to hell. It's Sorcerer, today on Cinema Oblivia. Welcome to Cinema Oblivio, the podcast where we discuss forgotten, unremembered, out-of-style, out-of-fashion, and ill-advised films. I'm your host, James Eldred. And who's joining me today? Oh, me? Madeline? Who's joining Hi. me today? <laughs> yes, you! Hey, I'm Madeline. <laughs> no, no, this is good. This is my speed already. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm Madeline Kessner. Um, I'm a film programmer for the Unnamed Footage Fest. We're a um, a film festival based in San Francisco. We show exclusively found footage horror um, in world camera film. So basically, any movie where the camera is an element of the the story itself, like the universe the story takes place in, the camera exists. So like mockumentary. Yeah. Um, any sort of like first person POV film where the camera is, you know, eyes. Um, yeah. So we've been doing that for a few years now. This is actually going to be our first uh, year going virtual. So we're going to have a 24 hour like telethon style film fest. And that's happening at the end of March. Um, cool. Yeah. I'm pretty excited. It's unnamed footage If you want to check it out. Uh, I am currently in Tokyo. So I guess, you know, I'll hear about it later. I would imagine <laughs> international rights are a bit tricky on those uh, yeah yeah we, we've been trying to figure out how to get it into other countries but we kind of need to get all the filmmakers on board so we know that we can have everything in north america but like uh like asia and other parts of the world we're not sure about yet but we're hoping <laughs> that we could you know we yeah. want everybody to be able to attend <laughs> i have a vpn so don't tell anyone <laughs> we won't say anything <laughs> Yeah, that, that's how I watch almost all of my content these days on like I on Amazon Prime and everything because Japanese streaming is just the selection of English language is hot garbage here. Yeah. <laughs> so like it's terrible. So I have uh, the VPN and everything, so I can that's how I, that's how I watch the majority of films I talk about on this podcast. But not this one. I own this one. Uh, tonight we're talk. Today we're going to be talking about. Sorcerer, the 1977 film by William Friedkin. You wanted to talk about this one specifically. Why is that? Um, I mean, specifically because I consider Friedkin one of my favorite filmmakers, and I had not actually sat down and watched my Blu-ray of Sorcerer, which I've owned for years now. Um, so it felt like a blind spot and something I was guaranteed to love, which I did. <laughs> so... Oh, I'm, gl I'm glad to hear it. If, if you would have hated it, it would have made for a good episode too. But I, I am glad you like it because I love this movie. I first saw it when it came out on, on Blu-ray about five years ago because as I'll get into when we talk about it, this was a very hard movie to find for a long time. It came out in 1977 
and just bombed spectacularly, like a, a lot of William Friedkin films. And like many other of his films, found an audience later. You you like him a lot. Uh, you know, I, that's, I, I'm I'm surprised because he made a, he makes a lot of very good films, but I feel that for every great film he's made, he's made a pretty bad one. Yeah, I, I mean, I could say. I like filmmakers that have like a pretty vast output mm-hmm. and it's sort of for like that, like exploration through the good, the bad and the mediocre. And Friedkin is just such a interesting guy too. Um, I feel like when he's good, he's really, really good. And once, you know, somebody makes like three movies that I consider like in my top 10 or like, you know, top 25, maybe like, they have to be one of my favorite filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. 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 He has an interesting career. He started in the 60s. You know, his first movie was a movie with Sonny and Cher. <laughs> I did know that. I haven't seen it, though. I think that's pretty hard to find. I hope it is. Uh, <laughs> it's called uh, Good Times. And his first big movie was The Boys in the Band, mm-hmm. which came out in 1970, which is based on a stage play about this the cattiest, bitchiest gay men in the world my boyfriend and i love it i <laughs> uh, i think that's a fantastic film have you seen boys in the band i have not oh that's a great one it also you know a movie like boys in the band sorcerer they couldn't be more different in every way imaginable but i feel they kind of have a running theme of freaking freaking films in my opinion are often very nihilistic mm-hmm. and occasionally misanthropic Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, and yes, so, you know, there's Boys in the Band. That's a pretty, that's a minor hit. It's, it has, it's as big a hit as a movie with an entirely gay cast could be in 1970. And then he made French Connection, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, monstrously huge. I watched that again last night because I hadn't seen it since probably the 90s. That's a fantastic, fantastic, like gritty, everyone's a bastard movie. You want to kill Gene Hackman's the hero, and I want to kill him in that because he's, yes. he's a piece of shit. He really is. Yeah, I God. need to revisit the French Connection. It's been years. I like while we were watching Sorcerer, I'm like, I want to show my partner like other Friedkin films, and I'm like, that gives me an excuse to rewatch French Connection because, like, I feel like he'd really get a kick out of that. The way that he shoots car chases that makes them feel like full-blown action sequences in in a way that like just cars racing doesn't normally. Yeah. I mean, I would, I'll talk about that more later. (laughs) Yeah. We'll get to the cars in this, but, or the trucks anyway, but you know, then then of course the exorcist, one of the biggest movies of the seventies, huge, Mm -hmm. huge, huge, like reality changing film. And then he takes five years off to make this. (laughs) He didn't make anything between the exorcist and this. Nope. Nope. Oh wow! He he made a ton of money, and mm-hmm. like I was reading in the, does your version of Sorcerer have the little booklet that comes with it? I don't think it does. Um, it was just like the bare bones release. Yeah, yeah. M- mine comes with an excerpt from his uh bio- autobiography, and he talks about after making those two movies because those were the biggest movies when they came out. He had a, a deluxe apartment in New York City and a mansion in Bel Air, and was like, "I'm good." <laughs> You know, I'll just chill. <laughs> so the exorcist did really well for him. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it is it is one of the greatest horror films ever made. It's still scary. Like, oh, totally. You know, thirty almost thirty years later. I think I was at a twenty fifth anniversary screening of The Exorcist at the Metrograph in New York, and Friedkin was there. He insisted upon showing the DCP, but like because he had. like remastered it. It was the director's cut. Like he had actually done work on it. So he's like, this is the definitive version. Do not show a film print, which is bizarre to me. Um, But you know, if this is the version he prefers uh, and it was sold out and the reaction in the room was insane because like you walk into a movie on its like 25th anniversary and you're like, everybody has seen this already. Maybe it's going to be a little dated. I don't really remember. I haven't seen it in a while. And people were screaming. There was a woman who stood up, screamed, and then walked out of the theater muttering at a point because of how frightened she was. <laughs> it's so effective. That's like awesome. to this day. Yeah, it ruled. <laughs> yeah, the first time I saw it, I saw it on Monster Vision on TNT. And hell yeah. You know, that version's edited to hell, but it's still the spinal tap sequence is not cut. Because mm-hmm. that's not violence. That's a medical, you know, they can show that, the, the medical scene in that movie. Mm-hmm. And that's the scene, I guess, back in the day that made everyone sick. Not the vomiting, not the crucifix, not all that stuff. The spinal tap scene. And, like, I had to not, I, I've i only seen The Exorcist maybe twice. I've seen it once on TV and once on a DVD. I've never seen any other version of it. I've only seen the first version. Mm-hmm. And that's not a film I really want to return to. It's just... Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's, I'm not a religious person that doesn't bother me about it. It's just icky. And it's a scary movie. And yeah, it's unpleasant to watch. Yeah. I mean, most of his movies are unpleasant to watch (laughs) in different ways. And as I get older, I find myself more affected by horror for some reason. So, Mm -hmm. like, when I was in my 20s, I was way into like, in 30s, I was way into like the French new extremity of horror and like, you know, inside and high tension and, I loved like the most disgusting gallows. Gallows are still cool because they're not even that scary. But like anything yeah. that is like legitimately scary these days, I I tend to skip it because mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little worse. I'll watch some Hammer horse. I'll, I'll watch some Peter Cushing Hammer films and call myself a horror fan and call it a night. <laughs> I've but. gotten weak on gore <laughs> as I get older. Like I still I I mean like I program horror movies. I write about horror movies. It's like a big part of my life, but. I've found that my tolerance for like extreme stuff and gore is getting like lower and lower. Like it used to be when I was young, it would be like, this is the most shocking, upsetting, disgusting movie ever. And I was like first in line to buy a ticket. And now I'm like, "Eh, I'll pass. Um, Which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I've never been really upset by gore. If it's like a slow knife or something like that, that might get me. But when I see gore in a movie, I'm like, Ooh, how'd they do that? Like, (laughs) Because that's like my film studies, film geek part of me. Like, also, I lived in Pittsburgh for almost ten years, and you know, that's zombie town, town USA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, I used to be terrified of zombie movies, but I think moving to Pittsburgh cured me because it made them even more movies. I used to go shopping in that mall. Yeah, and at that point, it cannot be more of a movie. 
Yeah. So when I watch like Day of the De- Day of the Dead that has the guy's head get torn off while he's mm-hmm. screaming, like mm-hmm. I watch that and I'm like, wow, that's an amazing effect. Not oh, that's I'm gonna go puke now. So <laughs> you know, that is an amazing effect. Uh, yeah, but, Day Day is the most incredible special but, effects yeah. of all of the Romero stuff. Yeah, I fucking love that movie. Freakin isn't the only you know person who worked on this. Obviously, uh, he didn't write it. It's it's based on an old book and that was turned into a movie called Wages of Fear. Although he doesn't say it's a remake, he says it's an adaptation of the same scenario. Mm-hmm. He kind of takes umbrage to people calling this a remake of Wages of Fear. Have you seen the other film? I haven't seen Wages of Fear. It's like super long, and mm-hmm. I was gonna watch it before this, but after watching Sorcerer, I was drained. Yeah, and, uh, like, I understand. Yeah, I don't now, like now. I really want to yeah. see it. I'm super curious. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure I own it because I used to work for a D, uh, movie distributor, and I would just get every Criterion disc. That's awesome. So I, I, I probably have it. It was fun. Uh, and but that 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 creates that Netflix problem of like I have all these movies. One day I'll watch them. So yeah, <laughs> the movie was written by um, Waylon or Wally. Green. I had never heard his name before, but he wrote The Wild Bunch. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. Yeah, I know. I was I was I was flabbergasted. I'm both not, I'm both like not surprised but surprised. <laughs> the Wild Bunch is uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh I have probably seen the, the I think probably one of the only films I've seen more than Wild Bunch is Aliens. And I've seen The Wild Bunch a lot because it's one of the only films my dad and I both love. So if we're together, we can watch that and not argue for 2 hours. And that's a fantastic film. That guy has a very strange filmography. He also wrote Solar Babies with Jason Patrick, <laughs> Patrick, which yeah, which is a terrible movie. And he also wrote RoboCop Two. Wow! Without warning. <gasps> yeah, I mean that's without warning. It like qualifies for my film fest in that it's a fake. I think you're thinking of a different movie. I'm uh, pretty sure it's a different one. I think mm-hmm. it is without warning. Let me double check that. Okay, because uh, there's um, a movie from no, the many- 90s called Without Warning, which is what I assumed you were talking about. Um, it's like a fake news movie. So it's like, oh, I turned the news on. Yeah, yeah, you are correct. He wrote the <laughs> 1994 Without Warning, the one about the the one about the meteor shower. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a meteor shower. Yeah. I knew it was like That's one a, of those. That's a weird movie, yeah. and But he also wrote... He wrote the first draft of D- Disney's Dinosaur, <laughs> which was oh, this gets this gets even better. It was supposed to be stop motion. This is in 1986. That's when the first draft of Dinosaur was written. It was supposed to be stop motion. Is this the movie I'm thinking of? Yes, the one that came out like in 1999, 2000. Okay, yes. yeah, <laughs> that movie was in development. But, yeah, that movie was in development forever. Oh. And it was supposed to be stop motion, directed by Paul Verhoeven, and uh, it, the script was des- was described as Shane with T Rexes. <laughs> I want to okay? see that version. I want to see the Verhoeven like stop motion dinosaur movie. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Verhoeven is my all time favorite director. Like he's my number one. So really. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a poll. <laughs> He's, he is crazy. I, I I respect any any director who's a bit out there. And but since since the eighties and nineties, uh, 
Green's moved on to TV and he produces and writ- he has produced and written for NYPD Blue, Law and Order, ER. So he's doing just fine, you know, I would imagine. It it totally makes sense that the guy who made Wild Bunch made this because I feel both of these films are kind of I guess stereotypically quote unquote manly films, you know, like mm-hmm. there are almost there are no women with substantial parts in either of those films. Mm-hmm. And we really haven't said what Sorcerer is about because, like, the first two episodes of this I've recorded were about Flashdance and Streets of Fire. Flashdance, everyone knows what Flashdance is about. Listen to Maniac. Streets of Fire, the plot's not important. This actually has a story, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, also, it's got a hook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, like, just the logline for what the movie is. Yeah, sold. Yeah, so what 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 is the movie then? You say, it, what is the movie? It is a film about a group of men transporting liquid nitroglycerin in trucks across the jungle. Yep, there you go. And if you don't know what liquid nitroglycerin is, it's basically liquid dynamite, and Mm -hmm. it is insanely volatile. Like, dynamite was invented by Nobel because liquid nitroglycerin killed so many people. In the movie, they're in some unnamed South American country, and an oil well either is destroyed by terrorists or explodes. They can't get any other supplies there. They find this case of old dynamite, and apparently if you don't rotate dynamite, I did not know this, or maybe they made it up, if you don't continually rotate old dynamite, that nitroglycerin will seep out of it. And so they have to, it's basically old dynamite in pools of liquid nitroglycerin. They have to take it by truck 218 miles. And I feel this is the most tense film ever made. I I mean, I might agree with you. There were there was a moment I I screamed. Um and nothing happened. Yeah, me too. The, yeah, the moment I screamed was not a scene where something happened. It was a scene where something might happen. It was on the bridge. Um mm. and Oh yeah. Oh my god. I, I it was I was I <sighs> freaking has the ability to make an incredibly tense sequence, nauseating. So yeah, sometimes yeah. when you watch a thriller, it's really fun to feel like on the edge of your seat, like that excitement, your adrenaline going, like what's going to happen. In this film, it manifests as nausea. <laughs> the mix of yeah. the music, um, just the the like how visceral, you know, the colors and and everything happening, you really feel like you are there and you are experiencing this with them. It's just, it's, it's so jarring. disconcerting like upsetting film and you mentioned the music the music is by tangerine dream who are one of my favorite bands because yeah. i'm that guy <laughs> and people who don't know tangerine dream are a german band they formed in the late 60s they were originally a kraut rock band like khan or 
Amandul, if uh, you know who those are. If you know who those are, you know who Tangerine Dream is. I don't know why I'm telling you that. Yeah. And uh, but they they kind of they they morphed into an electronic group throughout the 70s, and they've had eight billion people in it. The only consistent member was uh, the founder Edgar Froese, who passed away a few years ago. They're still kicking it. I haven't listened to anything like. I love Tangerine Dream, but I have not bought a new Tangerine Dream album. I, anything that's come out after 1989, I'm not interested in. But they they released they were like the hipster band of the mid 70s. They were the fir- one of the first bands signed to Virgin Records. They released Phaedra, which is a fantastic album, and they got a lot of attention by like intellectuals and like art minded people. And so, freak it was Freakin's idea to get them to do this score, and apparently. They never saw the movie. They, they read the script, wrote music based on the script, and then he edited the film to match the music. That's incredible. Especially that one theme that comes up anytime yeah. something horrible is happening. It's like almost... The entire film, yeah. Yeah, basically it's playing for most of the movie. It's that very high-pitched, <laughs> almost like... I, I, I believe it's electronic, but it's almost like a harp sound. Um, or like a, a screeching yeah. violin that's sort of lingering. Um mm-hmm that like just it's is unsettling you like while something horrible is also happening. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's very good at like training you to react to the music. Yeah. Yeah. A Tangerine Dream for like the early part of their career were almost like one of the first drone bands. And I feel this score has a lot of that Definitely. element in their music. They would mm-hmm. they would get away from that and get much even more sequencer based than they are in this album. Like the soundtrack for Risky Business is almost all sequencers. And they also did, they did a ton of great soundtracks and some bad ones and great soundtracks to bad films. They did the soundtrack to Risky Business, uh, Michael Mann's Thief, Firestarter, which is one of my favorite soundtracks by them. The American soundtrack, the American score to Legend, because the European score, I think, is Jerry Goldsmith. And then they re-edited the film and got them for the American version. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's Neo Dark, Miracle Mile, and uh, one of my favorite bad 80s movies, Three O'Clock High, which is like uh, high noon in a high school. And that that's a great also a great soundtrack. So if, if you like if you like sequencers, you know, if you want sequencers up your ass, Tangerine Dream is your band. That's that's what they <laughs> that's what they do. Some of my it's some of my favorite music, but I've ranked it. I'm sorry, I went off on a Tangerine Dream. Tangent. No, that's good. I mean, I didn't know that they did some of those soundtracks, especially Miracle Mile, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, the, the soundtrack yeah. is great. I can yeah. Miracle Mile is another, another film I can't watch again. It's just, it's, <laughs> too, it's too much. If I if I show that to my boyfriend, it would kill him. I feel like anyway. The movie also has a a, a fantastic cast of mostly nobodies, well, not nobodies, of mostly people who are not known to English audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the only real name in the film is Roy Scheider. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is right after Jaws. Uh, you know, he's the star. He plays a Irish mobster. So like everyone in the movie, the movie is structured really interestingly. Like it starts with these full logs mm-hmm. of all these different people. One of them is a hitman. One is a French businessman who's in trouble with fraud. One is a terrorist who is escaping Israel. And one is Scheider. And Scheider is an Irish mobster who stole from 
who stole, who shot the priest brother of uh, Mafioso, which just seems like a bad idea. And so his friend is like, you got to get out of here. Get on this boat. Where's the boat go? I can't. I don't know. Get on the boat. And so all these people who are trying to escape something end up in this unnamed South American, like, freaking describes it as limbo. But I honestly, I, I think it's hell. That they they all they're just in this bizarre hell that's dominated by this totalitarian government and an American corporation, and everyone there works for nothing to help the American oil company. I feel this movie, those first few scenes in this in this country, they paint a picture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and one thing I really like about the intro for for each character's intro is they don't. These are not um, these are not good guys. Like no. they don't try to make them relatable or make you, you know, pity them or or, or you know want to be on their side. They are not likable characters, and I think that that's a really strong choice for then selling the fact that they would go on this mission and kind of have like dug their own graves in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it is one of those things that when you think about it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, I feel Roy Scheider, he could have just gone to Wyoming. Like, you know, or I don't know, someplace where there aren't a lot of mafia ties. And like how this French, rich, rich French guy ends up here. Like, it's such a strange, it's almost metaphys- It's almost like they're just kind of magically transported there as punishment for their crimes. Yeah, yeah. It, that's exactly what it feels like is they they basically are in this weird like uh, metaphorical prison um yeah. yeah yeah with you know with some nazis and because yeah. that's that is a because there's the hitman and he kills somebody like the, the i feel the strangest character in the film is the hitman nilo he's played Definitely. by an actor he's played by a an actor named francisco rebel he, I've seen him in stuff because he's in a lot. Of, he was in a Belle de Jour by Louis Bunel, and he was in Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and he was in a few uh, Antonioni and Visconti and films. Like so, he was like in every foreign, like every. If you, I imagine if you were going to art house cinema in the seventies, you knew who this guy was, uh, and his character just kind of shows up there and kills somebody, and you don't know why. Like, do they really, ex- do you have any, I have a theory why, do you, do you I think, actually, you know I was going to ask you the same question, <laughs> because I'm like, did I, like, miss something, but my, but my theory, like, my, you know, what I kind of gathered from it was he wanted the money, that, like, he didn't get, make the cut for getting into this, you know, like, truck driving team, and he wanted to make that money um do you think that it was more personal Uh, well i thought it was a hit you think that he was actually there to kill that marcus character nazis yeah because that the guy he kills it's 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 suggested he's a nazi because you know if, Mm -hmm. if people who don't know this there were quite a few uh nazi war criminals who escaped to south america Mm-hmm. And that was still kind of a topical issue into the 70s because they were still yeah. finding them, you know. And there's another character in the movie, uh, Marquez, who is totally a Nazi. Like the, mm-hmm. the bartender, they they, all, they also allege he's a Nazi. Uh, 
I think this might, that might be the same character. I forgot who, but there was I did. I was it was interesting. I was when I was looking up everyone's filmography. The actor who plays Marquez, he is a German. He was in Nazi propaganda films. Now I'm not gonna I'm not really? gonna hold that. Who knows why? You know, I'm not, he's 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 long dead. He passed away in 1977. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not gonna defend him or attack him. Maybe yeah. he had no choice. Who knows? I but, mean, the film industry in Germany was making Nazi propaganda exactly. films. Yeah, he, so yeah, it was knows? if that was his profession, that was what he was doing. I mean, I am yeah. speaking as a Jewish woman right now, so it is yeah. not something that like I am down with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but that also like I I picked up on that he was a Nazi but I didn't make the connection that um that I think his name was Nilo the hitman was yeah. like may have killed him for that reason in yeah. which case he may be the the most you know like like he may be like morally the best character of the yeah. bunch which is so a, funny cuz all he does is his introduction is just shooting someone point blank and walking out of the room. It's the shortest introduction of any of the characters, but it also completely defines him. Yeah. And who knows who he's killing? That person could have been also been, a, he, he could just be a Nazi hunter. Who mm-hmm. knows? But I thought the actor was interesting because in addition to, he has to be the only person who was in Nazi propaganda films and then also The Longest Day, the American <laughs> German co-production about Normandy, which I think that that's a career arc, and yeah. also with really uh, another thing that was interesting, really small roles. Two of the elite, I think, one of the people who auditioned to drive and his friend—that's Joe Spinell. I also caught him in the credits, yeah. and I was yeah, like, Joe, Joe Spinell. <laughs> I didn't even Joe, catch him. <laughs> if you're if you're an exploitation fan, you know who Joe Spinell is. He did Maniac, but he's he he's one of those guys who just shows up. Like he's he's like, hey, it's Joe Spinell. Hey, it's that guy. And his friend Frank Pesh. Frank Pesh, I don't know how to say his name, but they'll both in 1970s New York movies, they just kind of show up. Uh so I like them a lot. They're, they're fun to see. I, I recognize Joe Spinell immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, most of the other people, the guy who plays the terrorist Kasim, his name's Amid Amid Amidao. He's a mono named actor. He's Moroccan. Moroccan friends. He's in Victory with Stallone, the John Huston movie, and he was in. He has a small role in Ronin, and oh, also cool. in also in Rules of Engagement by Friedkin, which I imagine <laughs> yeah. is not a good film. Uh, no, that would be one of the um, the the middling to bad ones. I would say. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I would. You mean uh, the late era Travolta Sam Jackson movie wasn't a. Uh, a banger? I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, surprisingly, I'm, no. I, I mean, you could probably catch it on cable some sometimes still, but <laughs> don't, don't. There's better, like you know. Yeah, it could be free on Amazon, but your time <laughs> isn't. Watch a better film. Making of this movie is it's crazy. After making The Exorcist, one of the biggest films of all time, you know, he kind of had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted, and he had a contract with freaking had a contract with Universal, and he's like, I want to make this movie, and he they show him the movie, and they're like, No, 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 you have no stars, 
And it's a remake of a depressing foreign film no one's seen. Like, he had a hard time casting it. He wanted to get Robert Mitchum to be the Roy Schneider character. But there's a great quote I found. Robert Mitchum said, why would I want to go to Ecuador for three months to fall out of a truck? I can do that at home. <laughs> I mean, it, w- it would have been amazing if he was in the movie, but like yeah. that quote is also amazing. So, <laughs> a Steve McQueen turned the role down. You know, I think Steve McQueen would have brought a very different energy. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to not like Steve McQueen. Yeah, he's so, too he's too cool. He's, he's just, too cool. Yeah. He's, yeah, I think yeah. Schneider's the perfect. Like he just kind of his awkward look. Yeah. Um and, and like the fact that he seems like he's trying to keep himself, you know, composed but is on the verge of exploding all the time. Yeah, and Yeah. He has his face like he has that his nose is terrifying, and it's just <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. He, he looks like someone who's been through shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, it looks yeah. like he's broken his face at one point. <laughs> yeah, it looks like yeah, he looks like someone who's who's seen the shit. Like <laughs> you know, so like in this movie, you know, I think Jaws is an outlier for him because most of his films are very dark. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's in a movie called I think Tate and Cohen, which is a fucked 80s assassin movie oh i haven't seen uh, that one i'll have to put that on to my list these days he yeah. plays an assassin who's hired to kill a little kid so I, i'll have to put that on my list <laughs> and, you know all kinds of weird shit i i've always liked him as an actor uh but yeah so like they, they were gonna like like um robert mitchum says ecuador they were gonna film in ecuador but uh universal wouldn't do the movie without getting an, another studio to back it so they signed a deal with Paramount to co-produce it. And Paramount wouldn't do it unless he scraped Ecuador and shot in the Dominican Republic. They wanted to shoot in the Dominican Republic because the Paramount chairman had large holdings in sugar and cattle there. Because hmm. Golf and West Golf and Western owned Paramount then. So it's kind of funny. The company that owns Paramount is very similar, I think, in Freakin's eyes to the American company in the film. An exploitative. (laughs) So, like, when you see a picture of this oil company's um, board, that's Golf and Western. Chairman took a freaking took a picture, took a photo of Golf and Western's board of directors and put it in the movie to show the evil oil office. And apparently, Paramount, Paramount. They, they weren't happy about that. But, like, the movie had a huge budget for the time, $22 million, like I said, because they film on location in Paris, in Jerusalem, in Mexico, in, in New Jersey. <laughs> they, they, they go to the Dominican Republic for reasons that we'll get into. They have to film part of it in New Mexico and in Mexico again. So it went way over budget. It went over time. The filming was a complete disaster. Um like the terrorist explosion in Jerusalem was too big and it actually destroyed some windows, including the mayor's windows. Oh my God. Uh, at the same time they were there, there was an actual terrorist explosion. And so like, if you look at the footage of that explosion, some of it seems very documentary. It's because they just got cameras out and filmed the actual explosion. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I found that whole sequence very distressing. So that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. And yeah, like freaking we'll talk about some of the freaking has regrets about how he made this film, which which we'll get into. But like he wanted to call the movie Ball Breaker. I'm glad they the, didn't. Was, yeah, I'm glad I'm they glad didn't. Glad they were my sorcerer. But I, I, I did want to ask you about, you know, the meaning of the title. Yeah. Did you read into that at all? I mean, I you have to because it's a term that like, you know, refers to one who uses magic. Um, so I guess like who, what, who, who is the sorcerer in this movie or like, what is the sorcerer in this movie? Well, one of the trucks is called sorcerer. It's the name of the truck. So I'm just dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the answer? (laughs) Well, I mean, why is it called sorcerer? One of them's called Lazarus and one of them's called sorcerer. And Mm -hmm. I caught Lazarus, but I I, like just didn't catch this name sorcerer on the truck. (laughs) <laughs> freaking kind of regrets i think ball break was a bad title he also regrets the title sorcerer because if, if you think about the marketing for the film mm-hmm. from the director of the exorcist sorcerer <laughs> so everybody yeah. thought it was a wizard movie <laughs> everyone was like oh the horror guy's in fantasy now <laughs> boy scheider is gandalf I would, yeah who knows i but, like the title i mean especially because yeah. a a, a liquid that makes such a giant explosion, like, does feel like some sort of magic in a way. Oh, yeah, um, totally. And it's also, like, a force that is invisible, and that, like, is uh, equivalent to, like, the tension of simply, like, being in the truck with it. I, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting title. Yeah, I think it's a cool title. It, it is. It It's ambiguous, and it's open to interpretation. And Or it's just the name of the look- truck. <laughs> Yeah, but also like like when you look at the poster, it fits the poster image perfectly. The Tangerine Dream soundtrack has the has the title treatment in like that font, and it's blood red. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the the cover to the soundtrack is a a frame from the film, and that's also the poster. The poster is one scene. So like the main reason anyone talks like this movie will get into the critical reception. It wasn't great when it came out, but I think. The movie was rediscovered much later because of what happens about halfway through the movie. The river scene. The scene that made me actually scream out loud. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think this, if you want to go in complete, if you haven't, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen the Sor- Sorcerer and you want to go in completely blind, you should stop now. But this was in the trailers. I don't consider it a spoiler. I consider it a way to get you to watch the movie. So they're transporting this nitroglycerin. They come upon a fork in the road. They both take different forks. They both go to the same place. And it's this bridge from hell. How would you describe that bridge? It is a uh, rope and wood bridge over a very active river um, that is old. It is an, <laughs> it, it is a sturdy bridge, but it is very old. Um, I mean, sturdy for a rope bridge, uh, yeah. but like the age me- makes it, um, you know, uh, what's what's the word that I want? Uh, unreliable. I don't know. Like like uh, unpredictable. Unpredictable. Yeah. I think is the word. Unpredictable. I yeah, it sways back and forth, and mm-hmm. they have to. So basically, to get across this bridge that's swaying back and forth, like they have no choice. They cannot go backwards. You can't pull a Yui in the jungle. Mm-hmm. So they, one of them, each each truck has two people in it. 
And in each situation, one person's driving and the other one has to get out and kind of spot them. And they have to physically move the wood to make sure the truck has enough wood to go over. And during this whole time, it is swaying back and forth nonstop. The truck looks like it's constantly on the precipice of falling into the river. And also, you have to keep in mind, truck full of nitroglycerin. Mm -hmm. So, kaboom. It's also raining. It's like torrential rain, right? It's rainforest type rain. Yeah. Yeah, rainforest nonstop. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those scenes that I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of stunt work. Like I I I love Jackie Chan films, and that's one of the reasons why I love like Australian films because they're all fucking crazy and they're just <laughs> like, yeah, light myself on fire, I'll jump in that hole. But like the you watch this scene and you're like, how? How? They, did they actually just do it? Because it is unbelievable to watch. It's crazy. What what they did is almost crazier. Mm-hmm. So they were filming in the Dominican Republic. They found a river that fit the requirement. They built the bridge on the river. It stopped raining. <laughs> okay. It stopped raining. So they were like, well, oh, fuck it. So they tear the bridge down. Mm-hmm. They find a new location in Mexico. <laughs> they go to Mexico to film it. Stops raining. So they're like, well, we're here now. So they dammed rivers to move water to make the river higher. Oh, my God. All the rain is fake. All the rain is machines. So the mo- that scene, and when you watch the scene again, it has a lot of close-ups. It has a lot of tight focus because mm-hmm. the rain – and if you look early on, you can tell the rain's fake. Like, like it's, a, it's like a, a composite because mm-hmm. it's not hating her clothes. But – it's all fake. The bridge was built. It's a very so the the bridge has um, hydraulics on it, and the the so, cables, okay. the ropes are steel. The ropes yeah. cover the steel cables, so it is much sturdier than it appears. But still, those the trucks fell over yeah. eight times, oh eight God. times with people in them. <laughs> Sometimes the actors. Uh, uh, and like so like the, the, the poster shot the amazing shot of this incredible this truck, yeah it's, the next frame its wheels are off they said like that's the last frame of it being that's a, that's a discarded take because mm-hmm. it fell off the bridge mm-hmm. oh my god it's like yeah it's it's crazy it's yeah. I yeah. mean the, the thing about that scene that is is so I mean that scene um the worst part of it is you go through it once and then the second <laughs> truck has to do it too. So you actually have to go through it twice. And it's so rough both time. <laughs> yeah. And it's like both of the drivers, because the main drivers are Scheider, Sh- I can never say his name, Scheider, Scheider and the French guy. And Roy Scheider's character is much more, I feel like, impulsive. And like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And that's terrifying in its own way because he could be going too far. The other guy is way more cautious. And that too is scary because if you're not, you know, and he he also almost runs over the dude. And Yeah, yeah, that was when I screamed. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I can't say when I screamed because that's a huge spoiler. But yeah, it's just... It's crazy. Like Freakin says now, 
he would have never done that. He's yeah. like, that was stupid. He said, when you make a movie, you shouldn't risk – you, when you make a film, you shouldn't risk a squirrel getting a sprained ankle. Like, it's irresponsible and dangerous. But he's like, anyone in their right mind would have said no, but no one was in their right mind. So, because, like, also, like, the production went over budget and it went too long. People kept getting sick. Like, half the crew got gangrene. Oh, my God. Or malaria. Mm-hmm. Like, it. I think it's one, it's kind of like Apocalypse Now. Yeah. The making of the movie. Or if it's, what's that one of, what's the one with, uh, with, um, what's the, the crazy asshole? Um, uh, uh, Klaus Kinski. What's that movie with the boat? It's called, oh, uh, Fitz, Fitz Corraldo. Um, yeah, yeah that's Corraldo. what I was going to say. Like, when you said the quote about, you know, he never would have done it. I'm like, yeah, leave it to Herzog. <laughs> like, yeah. Let Herzog do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just, you know, nowadays, like, I think CG is overused in movies these days, especially especially in horror films or in practical with monster movies. Like, I want to see a real monster. Mm-hmm. This movie, like, I love Fast and Furious, and sometimes sometimes it looks too fake, but sometimes I think they do a good job of combining the real cars and the CG, and it makes a good scene. I feel like in 2021, you could make that scene look good and still be scary without almost killing the star from Jaws. Yeah. I mean, Honestly, that's just my opinion. I, it, watching that movie, it is unbelievable that it is the 70s. Um it's just so modern in like the way it's cut together, like the, the action. Um, but then you know that like all the stuff that's happening with the trucks, they must've actually been doing that because there isn't really a better way to do it than to simply do it. So I'm incredibly grateful it was made when it was made and it was made how it was made. Uh, I mean, I, I feel, you know, badly for anyone who was you know injured in the process but they made a masterpiece so like yeah i hope that they feel proud (laughs) nobody died so hey that's that's good uh but like he does like freaking stands by it he thinks it's his best film but i you can tell reading interviews with him he it's the one he probably has the most regrets about in that's so interesting the yeah. making of it, not not how it came out, not how mm-hmm. he said he wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I I feel, and it makes sense when you when you look at all because it was hell making it was hell. It's one of like he was against like in the movie a really fantastic idea is the the shots of the odometer, like mm-hmm. so they have to go two hundred and eighteen miles, uh, and so Roy Scheider writes that on the top on the bo- on his dashboard next to the odometer so you see how far he has to go it's a great way to chart progress he didn't do that at first a paramount executive said well you can film that in universal on the back lot and he's like no if we're filming that we have to go (laughs) back to mexico and and eventually no one would have noticed (laughs) well and eventually he was like actually yeah we should just film that in the back lot so he did but i think he had a grudge against the executives and he wanted he you know, so he wanted to prove. Yeah, so, like, I mean, are you, have you heard him speak or like know no. much about his character? No, I mean, I, 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 you've seen him speak in person. I have a couple of times. I mean, he is, I lived in, I lived in Toledo and Pittsburgh. I don't get to see those things. So yeah. <laughs> he is a loud Boston bully. Like oh he's got a real, like kind of Boston-y, like, like 
accent and he's just very, you know, aggressive and blunt. Um, He's, I think the word that I've always chosen for him is he's a goon. Like, Okay. Like he's kind of an asshole. Like when you hear him talk, but he's often like so blunt and and says stuff that's like very funny that no one would say, but he's a little old fashioned. Like I think that he better watch his mouth or like he might battle with like getting canceled, which I, you know, um, (laughs) he's, he's 84 years old at this point. Exactly. He's too old. (laughs) Whenever a dude like, I don't want to get political because, like, I usually – if someone gets mad at someone for saying something transphobic, homophobic, or racist, I'm okay. Like, they should get mad. But if someone's, like, 85, just, like, you know, he's 85. He's not yeah. going to be – he's not on He's not on Tumblr. Just, yeah. He's never going to get not, it. Just don't listen to him. <laughs> like, as long as it's not – like, as long as it's not actively hateful, I'll just yeah. be, like – I'm just not going to listen. You didn't actually hurt anyone. You know, we have worse people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they are not spreading bigotry, like, just ignore him. Just like, he's an old man. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't want to hear Mel Brooks's views on gay people now. Like, I'm sure they're not great. (laughs) I'm I'm sure he means no harm. But he's like ninety something, so yeah, whatever. But you you telling me he's from Boston that really changes my viewpoint of like this scene. Like, no, nah, get the car on the bridge, get the car. On the-. Like, I just imagine he has even weaker R's than me. So yeah, yeah that kind of skews my 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 perception it's, of it's him like, as a person. It's like somewhere between like Boston, maybe maybe it's Chicago. I don't know, but he's just very like. Northeast bully. like i said over budget took too long and then it came out and died like like painfully died it's hard to find yeah i you know as i've been doing this i've realized anything before the late 70s it's very hard to get consistent box office numbers on you can get rough like i've read three different numbers on this like some people say it made six million some people say it made twelve million. Some say fifteen. Regardless, it mm-hmm. cost twenty-two million dollars to make. Yeah, it so didn't make its it, money back, and critics hated it for some reason. Critics hated it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I like to read critics' quotes, but the, the Wikipedia for this page is so in depth. If you really want to read critics' critics' quotes, you can go there. They, they did not like it, and I think, you know, I'm still, you know, the critics didn't like it, but in my opinion. If I was a movie, if I was an executive at Paramount Universal, and I'd be like, "Well, the critics hate it, but we got the star of Jaws in a movie by the director of Exorcist. What could possibly go wrong?" And the answer is Star Wars. That's what I was thinking you were going to say. <laughs> Anything that came out around the same time as Star Wars that was not a fun adventure movie, um, it just some amazing films were just absolutely crippled by it. 
Yeah. Movies, I, I did find on one box, it was not Box Office Mojo on another website, I forgot which one. I found movies that made more money than Sorcerer in 1977. You're, this is this is sad. You ready? So, Airport 77, which which I love, I love because that's the one that has Christopher Lee in it, yeah. uh, and Olivia de Holland. Um, For the love of Benji, made more money than that's a Ben. You know Benji, ben, the I don't dog think Benji. I, it's a dog. Oh, Benji the dog. Yeah, Benji. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. my god! No, no. I just I you I had you had to jog my memory. I don't think I've heard the name Benji in reference to that dog since I was a child. <laughs> so. Oh no! So that's the second Benji film. That's the one before the one of Chevy Chase. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> yes. Um, Herbie goes to Monte Carlo. Oh, gross! <laughs> this is so upsetting. <laughs> late seventies, late seventies family films are a terrifying uh, mm-hmm. jungle. Um, and then also Orca. Oh, Orca! I know Orca. Harris. Orca is a Harris. mess, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, those are funny kind of minor films to think about. Of course, it got beat by Star Wars. But do you know what the number two movie of nineteen seventy-seven was? Tell me. Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that makes sense, but it's also kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about that that movie on this podcast later because it's, it's, it's not a forgotten film, but it's not one yeah. that had any lasting influence, you know? Yeah, like and I just, I know that movie. You've um, never seen Smokey and the Bandit? I have not. I know that it's popular, that though. Movie's, that movie's was fucking popular. great. Yeah, that movie's fucking great. Mm-hmm. It holds up, and w- when I you do watch, love sm- Burt Reynolds. When you, wa- I used to. Well, I, I there was a time in my life where I was over smoking the Bandit, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I watched it again like ten years ago, and I was like, first of all, Burt Reynolds is not my type. But I watched that movie, and I'm like, I get it. You go, <laughs> Sally Field. Get that. Yeah, I, I almost said a bad joke, and uh, <laughs> I almost made a mustache joke. Anyway, and. Uh, <laughs> I can Sally it Field, out. <laughs> yeah, Sally Field's great in it. Jackie Gleason is amazing in it, and it ra- it wrote a zeitgeist of CB radios and trucker culture, and it's like a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So, like, if it wasn't that movie, would have been number one with a bullet by a long shot. If it wasn't yeah. for Star Wars, that's how huge it was. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. is funny because <laughs> when people ask when people ask me what Sorcerer is about, sometimes mm-hmm. I'll just say Smoking the Bandit in Hell. <laughs> it is so funny that like another truck movie did that well while <laughs> while sorcerer just like you know fizzled out yeah. yeah and and it did and it it is it is hilarious like if you made a wiki of quote-unquote truck movies it would have smoking the bandit and sorcerer like probably side by side because s alphabet alphabet uh-huh. but they could not be more different like there is there there are no jokes in Sorcerer. I think it's it's one of those films. It is entirely humor, humorless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No laughs. Yeah. No laughs. It ain't a wacky, happy, go fun ride, you know? So, yeah. So, uh, the movie bombed. A few critics liked it. Ebert liked it. That's cool. Yeah, he was but right. <laughs> it was one of the times right. he was right. <laughs> He, you know, usually when I disagree with, like, read when I research these old movies, and if there's a, if there's a, if there's a classic movie he hates or yeah. is indifferent to, mm-hmm. I can, I can see his viewpoint a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, he did not like Flashdance. I cannot blame him. You know, uh, this movie, I think it really clicked with him. 
one of the writers for the times and that was really it mm-hmm. and then the movie just vanished do you know when this was released on vhs tape no tell how me. long it took 1990 that is what 13 years 13, yeah that's incredible i mean also yeah. that's so sad yeah 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 so yeah, like I, even if it could have been rediscovered there were so few opportunities for people to do so. Yeah. I'm sure it was on TV somewhere in the eighties, mm-hmm. but it was just gone. And that happened a lot. There are a few films from the late seventies that weren't old enough to be classics or popular enough to be classics that it took a long time for them to come out on video because video hit big around 83. So, like, even a movie like E.T. took, like, three or four years to come out because mm-hmm. for that one, they're like, no, let's just re-release it over and over and over again. <laughs> but a lot of late 70s films, like, um, I was watching, oh, God, I'm such a nerd. So Stranger Things had the video store scene in the end of season two or three. But there's a scene in the video store, and for me, that was, like, peak nerd because it was, like, just all these old video displays. And, like, they had displays for era-appropriate films like Mad Max and Truck Turner but I'm like, oh, well, that didn't – Truck Turner is from the 70s, but that didn't come out on video until 1992. And I know that because I'm a dumbass. And so, like, a lot of late 70s films just kind of got swept aside. Mm-hmm. And that's one of them. But it had a yeah. bigger problem in that nobody released it. Nobody saw it. Very few people cared about it. So then nobody knew who owned it. Mm-hmm. So the rights Happens, were lost. Yeah. yeah so he sued – Paramount and Universal. Mm-hmm. Like, he wanted the movie to come out. So in 2012, he sued them. And there was, like, he, he clarified to the media, he's not suing for money. He was suing specifically for someone. Because when you sue, in that case, when he sues, they have to do discovery. They have to do the legal research. And then they have to find out who owns it. So he wasn't so, really suing to win a lawsuit. He was suing to find out who owned the movie. Yep, because then he dropped the lawsuit. That's smart. So, yeah, so uh, Paramount, Universal's rights to the film expired. Paramount owned it. They, they, they still really didn't want anything to do with it. And then somehow Warner Brothers like, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. So then Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers has now leased the film. And so they released it on Blu-ray. They put it out in a theatrical run in, in England for a little bit, like, like, yeah. like five years ago. I know that. And then it got um, a screening at Cannes. A yeah, few years yeah. ago too, which that I th- that I was aware of that when it. I don't know if it, if I have, I don't know what copy of the Blu-ray I have. Um, it's an okay disc. It's it's kind of bare bones. Um, yeah, but it looked pretty good. Like the 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 restoration of it is nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful transfer. I'm yeah. glad it's a good one. Um, Freakin had a terrible transfer with French Connection. If you've ever seen that. They had to re-release that Blu-ray. And unfortunately, here's a a public service announcement. The version of French Connection streaming on Amazon is the old transfer. And that I'm not a big, like, I guess you what a video file. Like, I'm not a big on like, oh, this transfer has too much grain or whatever. But that transfer is blue and Mm -hmm. washed out. It looks like it 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 does not look like a big budget Hollywood film. And It's a it's a shame that that's the only one that's digitally available. If you yeah. want to watch French Connection, buy the most recent Blu-ray. 
but this movie any copy is going to look good you know except that old vhs tape but yeah it's gonna it it's a the transfer is beautiful so it looks like i bought it in 2016 (laughs) so that probably (laughs) was the first blue like i probably bought sorcerer the moment it came out like i probably pre-ordered it and then just never watched it i was like so excited it had been restored and was finally coming out like and then i just never watched it (laughs) i'm so glad that we're doing this like because i don't think i would have (laughs) yeah i i never saw it on vhs it i remember the like when i was when my dad had the video store i would when i was a little i was 10 years old when this came out on vhs Mm -hmm. i remember the box because the box, the box is the poster with Roy Scheider's head is kind of plastered on in the corner for no reason other than hey, it's the guy from Jaws, <laughs> and uh, but it scared me like it 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 made me uncomfortable and I thought of course it was a sci fi movie because Sorcerer, mm-hmm. uh, and but I never watched it. It is one my dad loved. You know, it's 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 for me. It's, I call this is like like Wild Bunch or. Treasure the Sierra Madre. It's it's a gritty it's a gritty dad movie. <laughs> <laughs> Boomers love it. No, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a great film, but it's still hard to recommend sometimes. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, because it's a a very stressful watch. So I will say I'm the kind of person who like if I am experiencing like a great deal of anxiety in my personal life. Um, I find watching very like high stress films to be a good release. Oh, okay. Um, so like I have been so stressed out and, and like overworked the last week and I put this on and what happens is I think if I'm watching something light, my brain wanders and I wind up like thinking about all the stressful stuff while I'm supposed to be watching, you know, something fun and light. So if you give me something that's really intense, I am riveted by it. So, like, I think I started this movie and I was really nervous. I wasn't going to be able to pay attention. I'm like, all right, I'm turning the ringer off on my phone. So my phone's going to be on silent. And I'm, you know, we've eaten. So, like, I'm not going to be too hungry. I have a drink. And then within, like, 10 minutes, I didn't know, like, what time it was anymore. Like, you know, when you're watching a movie (laughs) and you're like, I literally have no idea, like, how far into this movie I am. Yeah, Um, yeah. And I think there was a point at which I I finally was like, considering the plot turn that this just took, I have no idea where we could possibly be. And I checked and it was 10 minutes from the ending. And this is a two hour long film. And it took me an hour and 50 to like have to do a time check because of how involved I was. So, yeah. yeah. So people like me, uh, you know, two thumbs up. High recommend. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the opposite. Like during when 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 the pandemic got really bad here in Tokyo, my boyfriend and I just we watched uh every Doorstay film. Like yeah. that's not an like like Yeah. I went I went peak gay and I'm just like let's <laughs> rock cuts and Doorstay go. Well, and so I like went hard on watching pandemic media. Like if I I know, I know there's something (laughs) wrong with me. I just like, but it makes, it makes me feel like better for some reason. I have no idea why. I I do like bleak films. I do like dark films. Like wild bunch is one of my, like I said, 
Yeah, and that is a spectacularly violent film. Also, I love violent movies. Yeah. I don't think I ever, I I think I was under the impression that like Westerns were fun, but they were never that intense. And then I watched The Wild Bunch and I'm like, I now understand everything I've heard about Sam Peckinpah. Like every time somebody made fun of him for being so gory, which like made me roll my eyes. I'm like, oh, no, 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 that was accurate. (laughs) it's like this is about supposed to be about but for a minute about the about I'm never gonna be able to talk about the wild bunch here because that's classic. So it's the same writer. It's it's related. Damn it. So like the thing about wild bunch, I, I this is the third episode in a row I've said this. My dad was a terrible censor. I watched the wild bunch when I was maybe eight years old. As a kid, I liked it because it was violent. Mm-hmm. This like, is very young. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, my, it, it happens. Um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you turned out you know, okay. Well, it's fine. <laughs> no, well, eh, you know, uh, it was the, it was. I think it was the first laser disc I watched because we had it on laser disc. Oh, my, that rules. My dad, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, as a little kid, I liked it because it was an action movie and it was violent. I and then as I got, as I got a little bit older in my twenties, I realized it was about you know friendship. And mm-hmm. and loyalty, mm-hmm. and now I, that I'm I'm in my early forties, the parts about it about mortality really get to me, you know. Yeah. And I feel that movie works on so many levels. And Sorcerer isn't as mult. Sorcerer isn't as fun as Wild Bunch. This is a fun. This is a funny sentence to say because Wild <laughs> Bunch, Wild Bunch does have as happy happy a last scene as that movie could. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yeah, y- you know. Some one character you like does live, you know, mm-hmm. and he he seems to he has a friend and you go. But like this one, I don't, we're not going to talk about the ending. Even if you think you know the ending, you don't know the ending of this movie. Yes, so. it, uh, yeah. I mean, when the mission starts, mm-hmm. I said something out loud that felt very obvious, mm-hmm. and it was more like me expressing a fear, but a mm-hmm. fear that I knew was like an eventuality like it was going to happen um but whatever you think is gonna happen at the very end like it just it it just key it goes places and it's rough you go on a journey with yeah with um with that guy yeah do you end up liking the characters because i i feel that's an interesting thing is like you know you don't really know the Yeah, like Roy, you know, Roy Scheider stole from Bat. You know, in 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 the world, in the reality of a movie, mm-hmm. when a criminal steals from criminals, you don't hate him as much because he's stealing from a bad guy. Yeah, and, I also felt like he was in an exceptionally bad situation, yeah. and <laughs> and like maybe he wasn't that much to blame as like the other three were and that he also like yeah. went through that trauma of the car crash like at yeah. the very beginning like they steal from the the mob church the church mob and yeah. then as they're driving away in their escape car one of them is backseat driving and the other one gets annoyed and pulls a gun and yeah. and um and Roy Scheider who is a fantastic driver actually a Greyhound bus driver he later confesses uh he he jerks the wheel and they wind up hitting a truck and the car flips and I think he's the only one who lives, right? Yeah, he's the only one who lives. Yeah, and and, and, so and he, he has is to traumatized by it. Yeah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And like, so I can, I, I can sympathize with him to a degree. The French guy is interesting because he's a white collar criminal yeah. and you sympathize. I sympathize with him the least in the beginning, but as the film goes and they, they humanize him. Oh, I sympathize with the, with the Palestinian terrorists the least. Well, um, we, we'll get there in a second. We'll get there in a second. <laughs> yeah. They, they sympathize, you know, I still don't like the character, but I feel bad for his wife. I did too. I, I, he was the one I wound up kind of worrying about for some reason, like his mannerisms, what you were saying earlier about him being overly careful. Um, I just felt like he was setting himself up to fail. And I, and like, so as the movie went on, I just felt worried about him more so than any other character. I will say I did. I think I wound up liking all of them to a degree like yeah. not to a degree where I like would like like really like them, but so much as like I didn't mind spending time with them. When it when it comes to the Palestinian, I don't want to get into that conflict on this podcast. But you know, <laughs> that's fine. That's, that's fine. That's a, that's a bag of worms. But it does a good job, I think, of humanizing that character without yeah. condemning or approving of what he did. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's a especially in the seventies, you didn't mm-hmm. see that very often. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I think that's sort of what my, my point was that like all of these characters are set up as like, not necessarily sympathetic people. Um, yeah, they're totally. actually allowed to be bad guys who then you grow to kind of enjoy spending time with to a certain degree. Um, yeah, and yeah. I felt like that was kind of daring um, mm-hmm. because in any other movie, it would be like all of them were like the wrong man or their friend did it. Like it would always be like a oops accident. Now I'm bad and on the run, but this movie actually lets them be the, the bad guy. Um, Yeah. But still it's very intense, but like, I think they have to be that bad guy in order to go on a suicide mission. Well, yeah. Cause they have nothing to lose. You know, that like that's, that's the setup for the film is like that they, they choose to be on this mission because they are trapped in hell mm-hmm. and this is the only way out Yeah, pretty much because the pay will be so good that they can get out of there. I think the interesting thing about that though is the French guy, he wants to get out I think to face the consequences of his actions. I think he wants you, to go back to France. Do you think he was sleeping with that woman? I don't, do, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? The, the lady with the amazing face? Yeah, like, who, like, slips him a note at one point, and then, like, like I could never figure out, like, I couldn't really figure out what that was, and, like, was he yeah. sleeping with her? Like, I I don't know, it was odd. It's a, Yeah, it's an, um, yeah. Um, one of many ambiguous decisions in the film, you, you mm-hmm. just don't know, like... Like, maybe it's know, in the I, novel, like, I, I and, and it's just, it feels, like, exactly am- ambiguous and kind of mysterious, like, the way that it's carried out, like, on screen. Yeah. Well, there is a there is a this is based on a book, but it's very lightly based on. Oh a book. yeah, so it's not. And, it and might the, be like totally. Then, <laughs> and there is a novelization. <laughs> like every seventies film had a novelization. That so rules. I love those things, man. I used yeah. to read those as a kid. So like, who knows what the novelization adds? Those can always be funny. But I I wouldn't want to. How do you rate this a book? And then they're on a bridge. Like turn the page. <laughs> oh no! Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a very good very descriptive writer <laughs> yeah, yeah. so 
<laughs> Sum it up really quick. Obviously, I think you recommend this film to people. Yeah, although I did have one more thing I wanted to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go if, ahead, please. I, I have you, are you a fan of To Live and Die in L.A.? Oh my God, yes. So I like that is my one of my favorite films of all time. Um, like my my you know, it's it's that and and uh, Killer Joe. Um, for for me, like those are like two absolutely phenomenal movies. But like watching this, I could I felt it felt very similar to Live and Die in L.A. in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I can totally see that. Yeah, sort of like the way it was criticizing like aspects of masculinity that caused people to do bad things. And um, that same like level of like very tense scenes that like make you feel sick. Um, And then also like being really like ahead of the game when it comes to like getting, you know, bands to do soundtracks um, and those soundtracks (laughs) becoming like, like intrinsic parts of, of the film. Um, Yes. Yeah. If people don't know the soundtrack to Live and Die in LA is by Wang Chung. Yep. And it's very good. It's so uh, good. <laughs> I feel it's funny. I feel those movies have a lot in common, but they're also very different in that they are very much of their eras mm-hmm. and they're not yeah. that far apart. I think Live and Die in LA is what, 80? It's early 80s. I think it's like 80, um, 85. I, I'm not sure. 80, yeah, it's, 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 so, like, the less than 10 years. It's a less than 10-year difference. That yeah, definitely. And the style's totally different. Mm-hmm. The Sorcerer is the uber 70s gritty movie. It is, it is new, quote-unquote, new Hollywood, full-blown, full I am an auteur, I have a vision, and it's unhappy, and it's grimy, and mm-hmm. everyone's covered in dirt, and everyone's a bastard. And To Live and Die in L.A. still has that, that core, this everyone's a bastard because mm-hmm. man, is everyone a bastard in that movie? Yeah, and that and is a, a misanthropic a, film for sure. It is yeah. a dark. It is a dark un- film about unhappy people doing bad things, but it is glossed to hell and back with the most eighties aesthetic. Yeah, and I mean that in a good way because I'm yeah. all about that. Yeah, and I like, like um, uh, Sorcerer feels more like. I don't know. It's noir to like us in a, in a way, but like, so sorcerer is neo noir. Um, live and die in LA is neon noir. <laughs> Very good. Put that on a box. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You are totally, yeah, totally. And to live and die in LA. It, oh God, I, God, now I want to watch that movie. Um, I own that one. That's a, yeah, me too. I've, I've watched that movie. Up. I've seen like that like projected i've I've watched it like a dozen Jealous. times yeah. i think the first I, time I, I saw that movie i didn't get it i was too young i'm like this is weird um and then i got a little older and i revisited and i'm like oh no this is about like the perpetuation of horrible like acts and like how they just continue to affect people and like ruin them um yeah yeah <laughs> We should wrap up, but really quick, can you think of any other films you recommend like this? Because, like, I, for me, The Wild Bunch is a similar film. I mean, and all- Live and Die in L.A. is my, you know, like, knee-jerk yeah, response. Because um, I have but, one more, but I want to hear if you have any ideas first. Give yours so that I can can think. Bring me, in- bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so more Peck and Paw. Yeah, more Peck and Paw, and also yeah. Soup, like... My thing with Peck and Paw is that Wild Bunch is 
I love Wild Bunch. It is a misogynist film. Like mm-hmm. I, it is obviously a misogynist film. I think by the time he's gotten to, to bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, the misogyny is gone, and he had just hates everyone for who they are individually. Yeah, that's and, what I, I'm like trying to think of other movies with that level of nihilism, um, yeah. where it's almost like like an odyssey in a sense, but like yeah. the most miserable. I mean, Apocalypse Now is a good is it, it is yeah. sort of Friedkin's Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is mm-hmm. far is is much vaster than this and far less grounded than Sorcerer. Yeah. Like Sorcerer has, like I said, it's a hook. Like when yeah. I when I read, you know, transporting nitroglycerin in a truck through the jungle, I'm like sold 100%. I want to watch that. Um, and it delivers on that hook while Apocalypse yeah. Now is like all over the fucking place. Um, totally. But like there are vibes and, and themes that I think exist in both. I think if if you if you're just looking for bleak '70s shit, mm-hmm. I would also say maybe um what's it called um Rolling Thunder, which is not the same theme. But if you just want something dark and hateful, like that's a <laughs> that's a uh, the guy who did who wrote Taxi Driver. I forgot his name. Uh, uh Paul Schrader. Yeah, Paul big, Schrader movie. I'm a big fan of Paul Schrader. Yeah. Yeah. So like yeah that and if you start with there, that'll take them down a path. Maybe if you like. Uh, Madeline here, and you like to be stressed to no end during a time of great distress, <laughs> then we have given you th- three or four films to jump off of. Sorcerer, Live and Die in L.A., I'll Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Rolling Vengeance, not Rolling Vengeance, Rolling Thunder. Rolling Vengeance yeah, Rolling is Thunder. much... <laughs> Rolling Vengeance is a much... Do you know what that is? Uh, I don't know, do I? Rolling Vengeance is a Canadian exploitation film. It's basically <laughs> Death Wish. Yeah, it's 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 Death Wish, but instead of shooting people, he builds a monster truck. <laughs> All right, I want to watch that. Uh, that is it's, the recommendation I am walking away from this with. <laughs> you know, well, if hey, then if you want to come back on this podcast, we got a movie. Uh, <laughs> awesome. I, I own that on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, I love that movie. But anyway, yeah. So we've given you some recommendations to go from there. So, um, anything else you want to say about this? No, this has been like absolutely fantastic. It was really fun. Right. I'm so happy I watched this movie. Like, I'm gonna probably rate this like a five on Letterboxd. I am blown away. Um, and yeah, your your follower your followers can follow me on uh, on Twitter <laughs> at DVD Box Set if if they want to. <laughs> but that is the best screen name, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. I've I, had it for a very long time. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Lost Turntable, and also I still have a website, LostTurntable.com. This has been another episode of Cinema Oblivia. I'll be back next time with another strange, forgotten, or otherwise, you know out there film. Thanks.
spoilers, spoilers now. One thing that To Live and Die in L.A. and Sorcerer have in common is in the third act, mm-hmm. you know, the hero, quote unquote, the hero yeah. gets it. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. they, they end by basically just like killing them, which almost feels like, you know, maybe the best way out for these people. But but yeah. they wouldn't agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. like like I'll put I'll put a warning. We're obviously in spoiler territory. We are in mm-hmm. spoiler territory. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Yeah. The last scene of this movie is you finally get to I finally am rooting for the character hundred percent. Like <laughs> he went through hell. Like any sin I feel like he almost absolved himself of his sin. Yeah. If you want to be religious about it. He went through hell. He he didn't screw over anybody to like everybody else dies except Roy Scheider. Yeah. He didn't screw over anyone. He tried to help everyone as yeah, much as he could. Yeah, it actually seems like he bonded with them. And like, there's a yeah. point in the middle where he's like, they're not going to make it and we're going to get all the money. And then like, they catch up and he's like, okay. But then he bonds with them. Um, yeah. And and you can see how devastated he is about yet again, you know, in a car losing the other three. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and then he has to carry the nitro the last like mile and a half, two miles by My hand. Because the car breaks through through this 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 landscape that is that's in Mexico. That last part is in Mex- New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It and is that's, nightmarish I, watching him yeah, that's walking the, that's the bad towards line. towards the fire. Like, yeah, towards oh, Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes through hell, he gets the money, he goes to have a dance with that girl in the bar, and then Oh well, guess what, motherfucker? The mob found you. The end. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, oh. yeah. It's uh, and like I think you you hear the gunshot as the camera pulls back. You do very. It was funny yeah. the first time I saw this on my crappy old TV. I didn't hear it, and then I yeah. watched it the second time on my brand new TV with my Sonos speaker bar, mm-hmm. and I totally heard that gunshot. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm like, are they gonna give us like a potential like ambiguous out? And then it was like, and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 the end. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, this is the 70s motherfucker and star wars has not come out yet you are dead yeah. yeah and can i say like the thing i was referring to when they were leaving okay um yeah. then they're setting out on the two trucks i'm like oh they're not both making it one of those trucks is not going to make it there is well, no way yeah. that this movie yeah. can get to the end with both trucks intact and when it did happen, oh, I didn't, I didn't see it coming at all. I think I was like petting my cat, and then all of a sudden, there's an explosion on screen. I was like, "No!" Yeah, yeah, that's the part where I get ga- like I audibly gasp because like it's and it's such a enough. It's a blowout. Oh, the it's tire so, blows out. It's so and devastating. It's- Watching the crates fall towards the camera, that shot. Yeah, oh, devastating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So yeah, but. 